Now, if you cast your mind back to last week, you'll remember that our big idea was that after you have listened to God's word, you must be careful to act on what you've heard. James was clear in making the point that those who merely hear the word, but don't obey it, and fail to do that which the word requires, they are deceiving themselves. And this deception causes them to misevaluate or miscalculate their standing before God. They think that they are saved when in fact their lack of righteous deeds show that they do not belong to God. We saw the insanity of hearing God's word and then failing to act on it. It was likened unto a man who would look at himself in a mirror and then instantly forget what he looks like. But then James encouraged us by saying that those who hear the word and truly receive it in their hearts and then go about doing that which the word requires, that they would be blessed in the doing. They would be blessed in the doing of the good deeds expected of them. God graciously gives us the physical and spiritual energy to do good works in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need not be discouraged that James calls us to do and to act, to perform works of righteousness. And this is good news for us because the thrust of James' teaching is that acts of righteousness must accompany authentic faith. Or to put that another way, a real Christian gives evidence that they have been truly saved by the good things that they do, by the good things that they practice. So now, as we move on to verses 26 and 27, James solidifies this point with practical examples. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, if you don't practice the control of your speech, you aren't a Christian. And then he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, a real Christian cares for the helpless among them and a real Christian cares about their own personal holiness. So while I could preach a sermon that is simply about controlling one's speech or simply about caring for the helpless or simply about one's personal holiness, we should recognize that James wrote about these topics within a broader context. That broader context being the marks and evidences of a true believer. A genuine believer performs deeds of righteousness in keeping with the truth of the gospel that they believe. Therefore, a genuine believer controls their speech as a matter of practice. A genuine believer cares for the helpless among them. And a genuine believer is concerned about their own personal holiness. So as we look into these topics, we should always be thinking about what doing these things or not doing these things says about our profession of faith. Are we really who we say that we are? Are we really Christians? So let's start by looking at the first exhortation that James gives. That we ought to bridle the tongue. What does that mean? Well, for those who don't know, a bridle is a piece of equipment used to control an animal that one rides, typically a horse. It's the headgear which consists of buckled straps to which a bit and reins are attached. So, the, if you've ever seen a, a horse being raced, 
at the garrison, you know, the bit goes into the horse's mouth, and with the reins, you can get the horse to go where you want it to go. So the imagery that James is using is meant to communicate control. The same way a rider has firm control over his horse, you must have firm control over your tongue and the things that you say using your tongue. Now the question we should ask is, why is it so important for us to control our tongues? Why this emphasis on the tongue? Well, let's briefly look at what scripture has to say about the tongue. James himself elaborates on the tongue in chapter 3. So if you turn over, James chapter 3, from the second half of verse 5, we read, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire! And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. Listen, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The short answer, brethren, is that human beings use their tongues to sin. With our tongues, men blaspheme God. We boast pridefully about ourselves and we don't give honor to God. We take the Lord's name in vain. With our tongues, we tell lies and we deceive each other. With our tongues, we can also cause emotional injury. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. The insults and harsh things that we say can cause emotional scars that last a lifetime and can negatively change the course of a person's whole life. With our tongues, we even cause physical injury. Imagine that. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That is to say that with our tongue, we say things that can either bring death or life. Imagine if a child was found murdered and there arose an angry mob searching around for the killer. And you, seeing someone that you don't like, seized the opportunity and said, he did it, or she did it. What happens next? The furious mob, in their rage, rush at him and beat him to death. You, by being a false witness, brought actual deadly harm upon your enemy with your tongue. You, in effect, pronounce death over your enemy with your tongue. And likewise, on the other hand, a man seized by a mob and about to be killed can be saved by words of pleading or by words of persuasion. So this is what's in view when the Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. It's not talking about the false notion that people have the power to supernaturally speak good things into existence or to supernaturally speak and cause themselves to have blessings. No, the Bible is saying that with the tongue, one of the smallest body parts, we can say things that could cause a person to either live or die. So indeed, the tongue is a dangerous thing if left unchecked and left to run wild. Therefore, James says that if you don't, as a matter of practice, put your tongue in check and you perpetually leave it to run wild and leave it to spout evil and profane things, then you are deceiving yourself about the faith that you think that you have and your religion is worthless. Your religion is worthless. Before we go on, I want to take a look at that word religion. 
It appears three times in the short text, and I know it's a word that leaves a bad taste in the mouths of some. For many in the modern church, the word has a negative connotation, as it has come to be associated with dry, unauthentic, and merely outward acts. In terms of Christianity, a religious person, in the sense of the word religious, would be the person who does outwardly Christian things, like maybe they're a part of the church choir or they wear a certain ceremonial dress. But when you look at their life outside of those overtly Christian acts, they look just like every unbeliever. They take part in the ceremonies and rituals of the faith and appear to have a form of godliness, but there is no real faith and love of Jesus connected to those acts because they also take part in worldliness and sin as a matter of practice. And so the fact that the word religious has come to have this negative meaning is understandable. Far too many people are Christians only with regards to outward show, and thus they're not really Christians at all. However, just because this is what the word may have come to mean to our modern ears, it doesn't mean that that's how it was used here in James. The Greek word that has been translated as religion is threskos, and it means ceremonious in worship or pious. It's a small, short definition. Basically, it's a word that refers to the acts or deeds connected to the faith. It refers to the practices that you follow because of the faith that you believe. However, the important point to note is that there is no negative connotation accompanying the word. To our modern ears, we may hear the word religion or religious and want to define it as ceremonial in worship or pious, but having no real love for God. But that's not the sense in which James uses the word. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So, having heard that, realize that the implication is that if a person did bridle their tongue, then their religion would be worth something. So there is such a thing as religion that has a good connotation. There is such a thing as being ceremonious in worship or following the practice of the practices of the faith while actually, really, and sincerely having a love for God. So as we examine this portion of the text, I don't want you to be put off by that word religion or religious. But instead recognize that all of us should be religious. All of us should be practicing acts that evidence our genuine faith. After all, that has been James' whole point. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So again, religion simply refers to the set of doctrines or beliefs about God as well as the practices that go along with those doctrines or beliefs. With that said, James says, if your, rather he says that your religion is worthless if you fail to bridle your tongue. If you habitually fail to control the things that you say, then the set of doctrines or beliefs that you have about God are of no value. I'll say that again. If you habitually fail to control the things that you say, then the set of doctrines or beliefs you have about God are of no value. Why is that? Well, you see, the value of religion or the value of the set of beliefs that one holds about God is in its power to save from hell. That's what makes it valuable. And we all know this to be true. Let me ask you this. Is it better for you to believe in Jesus of Nazareth? Or is it better for you to believe in Allah, 
the God of Islam. Of course, it's better to believe in Jesus. Why is that? Because belief in Allah cannot save you. Thus, Islam is a worthless religion. Only belief in the one true God of the Bible can save. Only placing one's faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can save you from hell. And so the only religion that has any value is Christianity. And so further to this point, James says that only genuine belief in Jesus can save. Sadly, there are those who have counterfeit faith. They say they love Jesus and that they know about him, but they show themselves to be deceived by their conduct. These are the mere hearers of the word who do not do the word. And so in light of this sad reality, you can know that someone has genuine faith in Jesus when, at the very least, and I say again, at the very least, they control the things that they say. So this is why James can say that someone who doesn't control their speech has worthless religion. They show themselves by their habitually sinful conduct to not have genuine saving faith in Jesus. They have instead a faith that cannot save. They have worthless religion. Also with regards to religion, specifically the practices that go along with the faith, those too can be worthless. And they're worthless when those acts are not done in spirit and in truth. For example, God does not applaud when, say, the Muslim opens up a soup kitchen to feed the poor. Because since he rejects Jesus and his deeds are not done from a redeemed heart, then his deeds, though they may seem righteous to us, are as filthy rags before a holy God. Those deeds, though good, are impure and defiled. It's like if you have a delicious plate of food that has been contaminated by rat droppings. It has been made impure and defiled. It's now worthless. It doesn't matter what it smells like, what it looks like, it has rat droppings on it. It is worthless. What the Muslim should do is repent of his idolatry, believe in Jesus the Christ, and then his deeds will be accepted by God as pleasing in his sight. James tells us in verse 27 that there is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. The implication is that there is such a thing as religion that is impure and defiled before God the Father. And such are any deeds that are not done from a redeemed heart. So what application should we draw from all these things? Make sure that your religion is not worthless. We must do like Paul says and examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Because we may be deceiving ourselves. We may think we're religious. We may seem religious. But the proof will be in our deeds. Remember the teaching of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. As he warned about false prophets. He says of the false, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit 
is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And James, the brother of the Lord, no doubt hearing his big brother speaking these truths in their home as they grew up together, himself says in James chapter 3, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in his image, in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things all ought to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The point that both our Lord and James make is that deeds of righteousness necessarily accompany genuine faith. You can't say, bless the Lord. God is good. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And then turn around and bless the enemy cuss. You can't praise God as faithful and true and then turn around and yourself lie and deceive. So examine your conduct. Especially your tongue and the things that you use it to say. Like Paul says in Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So we've just seen how habitual failure to control the tongue shows one's religion to be worthless. On the flip side, controlling the tongue would give some evidence of genuine faith. And according to James, a couple more things would give evidence of valuable, worthwhile religion. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now I just want to say that James is not here meaning to give an exhaustive list of all the deeds that constitute pure and undefiled religion. What he's doing is just orienting our minds to where they should be as we endeavor to do deeds in keeping with the faith. For example, if someone were to think themselves religious because they made a show of long, drawn-out prayers or from great shows of emotion while singing in worship, yet they felt no compulsion to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, it would be evidence that they have missed the mark on what true religion is. So with that said, we should first understand the significance of being an orphan or a widow in James' context 2,000 years ago. You see, in the first century and the centuries preceding, being without the care of a father or husband left you especially vulnerable. Your opportunities for making an income were severely limited. And so having virtually no way to provide for yourself, you were left at the mercy of others. And so God, in his mercy, commanded ancient Israel to care for such people. Deuteronomy 27.19 says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Exodus 22.22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. God also put civil laws in place to ensure that the helpless were protected. Listen to this one from Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your problems in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, 
who are within your tongues shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So we see clearly that the fatherless and widows were a special group in God's eyes because of their vulnerability. So now that we understand this, we can ask the question, why is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction considered pure and undefiled religion? Why would doing it offer evidence of genuine faith? Well, it's because of what's really involved in this idea of visiting someone. You're mistaken if you hear that word visiting and you just think of going to see somebody. You want to hang out. You say hi and you tell them that you're praying for them. Really and truly, you forget all the time. And then you leave, wishing them all the best. No, the sense of this word visit is more weighty than that. The Greek word that is used carries the sense of looking closely at somebody, examining them to see where you can minister to their needs. So visiting the orphan and the widow in their affliction literally means caring for the orphan and for the widow. And to be clear, James is talking about real, tangible care. Our Lord Jesus used the exact same word in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 36. Listen. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. Listen, I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The sense of these things is real, tangible care, food, clothing, shelter, money. It's not just well wishes and prayers. And don't get me wrong, I'm not at all downplaying the importance of prayer. But I've, I've ever considered that after you have prayed, that God has purposed you to be the means by which those prayers are answered? That you are the agent or the instrument of relief sent by God to ease the burden of the afflicted? Think about that. James will stress this point in chapter 2 where he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? These are James' words. What good is that? Friends, it is of little use if you don't actually do what makes for the care and provision of the helpless. And yes, it will cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you your energy, physical and even emotional. But that is what we have been called to as Christians. These are the sorts of acts that real Christians do as a matter of practice. Friends, James says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. True religion. That is faith and practice that evidences a truly redeemed heart. Is at the very least 
the care of the helpless. Why? The helpless have no way of repaying you for what you do for them. Thus, when you give of your time and resources, you do so sacrificially. You show yourself to be good students of Paul who said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. By this, friends, you show yourselves to be children of God, striving to be like him and striving to do the things that he does. Psalm 68, 5 says that God himself is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. So you too must be father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. Finally, brethren, the second thing that James describes as pure and defiled religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. You can picture the imagery that James evokes here. Imagine yourself wearing beautiful, new, white, pure clothes. And being very careful to not even go near mud or puddles of water because you can't bear even the thought of one drop of mud getting on you and staining your beautiful clothing. This should be very relatable imagery for us, given all the rain that we've had over the last few days. But seriously, we need to be hyper aware that the world around us is one giant mud pit. And what James is saying is that we need to stay away from it. Guard ourselves from it. And we see why when we look at what the Apostle John had to say about the world. We'd have to cast our minds back very far because our brother preached on this maybe a year ago. 1 John 2, 15, 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you see, this is how one becomes stained by the world. By loving the world and the things in it. Paul joins the assault on worldliness when he gives specifics and says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, those who take part in these things, who practice these things and love them, they soak up the filth and mud of the world and make themselves unholy. They blacken their clothes and in impurity they defile themselves. And here is the focal point of what James is teaching anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you do not keep yourself unstained from the world and from the things that Paul warns of, you show yourself to be without the implanted word that we looked at a few weeks ago. And whatever it is that is in you, it is not the word of truth. And it cannot save your soul. Worthless. But brethren, as John says, Whoever does the will of God abides forever. As James told us, 
the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not loving the world, but doing deeds of righteousness in keeping with the saving faith that is in him, he, not being a mere hearer of the word who forgets, but a doer who acts, who acts on what he knows, he will be blessed in his doing. He will persevere and attain the crown that is eternal life with Jesus Christ forever. So friends, take your personal holiness seriously. To be holy is to be set apart for special use. You don't use the toothbrush you use on your teeth to also clean your sink drain. Or at least you shouldn't. <laughs> it is set apart to be kept clean and unstained. So too you, if you are in Christ Jesus, have been set apart to be holy before God. Peter exhorts, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I urge you, keep yourself from an unbridled tongue and a mouth that pours out evil. Whoever, for whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Also keep yourself from selfishness and see to it that you care for the helpless among you. Brothers and sisters, by these things we will show ourselves to be genuine believers in Jesus Christ. We will show ourselves to be sons and daughters of our Father who is in heaven.